0: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com slash changelog. Move fast and fix things like we do here at Changelog. Catch your errors before your users do with Rollbar. If you're not using Rollbar yet or you haven't tried it yet, they have a special offer for you. Go to rollbar.com slash changelog. Sign up and integrate Rollbar to get $100 to donate to open source projects via Open Collective. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Oh, my God. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelawcom live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JSPartyFM. And now on to the show. Okay, hey there, K Ball coming
1: back at you from Node.js Interactive. I'm here with my man, Nick Nisi. Hello. And we are talking with Nora Kaspergan, senior full stack web developer at NPR, focused on voice UI devices, which I'm really interested to explore. Um, So, Nora, can you tell us a little bit? You gave a talk today, was it?
2: Yes, yeah, it was this morning. Uh, So, my talk that I gave here today was a little bit more kind of strategic, our high level technical strategy approaching these platforms. Um, because it is a very important space for NPR. For those who are not familiar, we're public media, specifically public radio organization for the United States, Uh, but people are not buying radios anymore. Um, But they are buying devices like the Apple HomePod, the Google Home, and the Amazon Echo. And uh, at our core, all we really need in order to provide an NPR-like experience is an internet connection and some kind of audio output. Uh, So that's why expanding onto these platforms is very important for us. Um, I'm essentially the lead engineer on that team, Um, but we're very small. We have only five people, two developers, a product manager, a designer, and a a scrum master. Um, So we have to do a lot with a little, and so we're also very kind of conscious of um, how can we try to, Uh, structure our work in such a way that we don't have to code for for every single platform from scratch. Mm. Uh, How can we do this in sort of a reusable way? Um, And so far, we've done that with pretty good success on um, Alexa and Google Assistant, um, essentially setting up code bases where a lot of the code is shared, um, even though there are platform differences, there are different SDKs, that sort of thing. So I talk about sort of how that works um, and uh, what that kind of looks like in practice. Um, Part of what's enabled us to do that fairly easily as well is uh, the rise of serverless. Um, So we're using Lambda, uh, and that's kind of worked out nicely for us um, there. Um, And then also just kind of briefly touch on some of the interesting challenges that we've run into in this space, like, for example, um, a big thing for us is anytime that we're, we're working with these devices, obviously, at the end of the day, the goal is to play an audio file. Um, either a stream or an MP3, uh, but these devices so far have been very focused on text-to-speech, um, and so sometimes the audio APIs are still a little bit lacking, so that's kind of part of the challenge of working in, um, in a new and exciting space. Um, also still learning about what you know good user testing looks like, what good QA practices looks like, um, and that's all kind of still a work in progress, so, like I wouldn't say that we figured out the answer yet. Um, but I'm glad that at least uh, people enjoy hearing about what we figured out so far.
3: Yeah, that's very cool. <laughs> so, uh, did that involve like the development of like a? A framework around the the frameworks for each of these devices.
2: Uh, kind of. Yeah, we we ended up with something that we are calling uh, our generic voice UI framework. Um, But at the same time, people ask me about this all the time. Is like, would would it be helpful to have sort of like um, like an Angular or React for voice UI development? And my answer there is no, just because the SDKs that these companies have provided for Alexa for Google Assistant are already pretty robust, and I think. The more that you try to put abstractions on top of those abstractions that they already give you, Mm -hmm. um, it kind of takes you very far away from the nuts and bolts as well. Um, so I think our framework works well for us because it's also built on our understanding of what's really happening underneath the hood. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend that someone else goes and builds like an open-source framework for voice UI development.
1: So can you walk us through like what does one of these apps even look like? Is this some installable thing that goes on the device? Is this like a manifest file that things go co- and like? know what to talk to? Like, how does this even work?
2: Um, yeah, so it's a it's a little bit of a mix of all of those ideas and um, some new ones. From the user perspective, for the most part, they are essentially apps that you install, but nothing really gets downloaded onto your device, for as far as I'm aware. It basically just kind of links your account with that app to enable you to use it. Um, But that's really all that happens, at least as far as I'm aware. I don't know the exact way that it works behind the scenes because that's also a little bit of uh, the black box that both Amazon and Google control. They don't necessarily always tell you exactly what's happening. Um, But most of what's happening, we do know, is actually more so in the cloud. Um, So there's very little that's actually stored on the device itself. So for a third-party developer like me, um, you're essentially creating an API that takes in requests from uh, the, in this case, either the Alexa service or Dialogflow, which is the service that Google provides for Google Assistant. Um, That always comes in the form of a JSON body that you're basically responsible for parsing and figuring out what the user was actually trying to do. Um, They've already kind of pre-processed that, done a lot of natural language processing and machine learning. So um, it's usually pretty clear from that JSON body what the user was trying to do. Uh, And the SDKs essentially take care of um, usually just mapping that to a specific function in your app. Um, So you're you're not really, you don't have to do a whole lot with that big JSON blob. And then uh, you need to produce a response um, that is also a big JSON blob that follows a certain format that they have laid out. Again, the SDKs really help you do that um, so that there's very little boilerplate that you actually have to write. And so what's interesting is that even though you're actually creating an interface. Like in some ways, it is like front-end development, but the actual code looks more like a very simple Express server because mm-hmm. you're just taking in that one request and producing a response. Um, and that's also why it lends itself really well to serverless because you're all you're really only deploying like a single function. Again, taking in a request, producing a response.
3: Yeah. So how does that work for for testing that? Um, is is it something that you can test locally, um, or or do you have to, um, like Have it running like with the whole the whole setup, with with a device that you're talking to and
2: Yeah. Um so yeah, that's kind of what we're still figuring out and there are people working on third party tools for this as well, so Uh hopefully that's the part that I'm hopeful we'll continue to get better in the future. Um, Essentially, like any other code base, we do some unit testing, um, but we don't really have confidence that just because the unit test passes, you know, when the user actually talks to their device is going to do what we expect it to do Mm -hmm. Um, because of that natural language processing machine learning component that happens inside the Alexa or Dialogflow service. So ultimately, in order to do really robust testing, at least right now, we still have to test with a physical device. Thankfully, there are various ways to do that so that um, you are able to test without just having to publish to live, essentially. Mm -hmm. I think that's the part that a lot of people are kind of confused about. both Alexa and Google Assistant essentially have this concept of like uh, a production version and a development version of your skill uh, or your app um, action on Google, whatever you want to call it. Um, so most of the time, it's fairly easy to set up some kind of CI process so that when you push code to your repository, it updates only the development version. Mm-hmm. Um, and...
3: Uh, so then you have a device that is running the development version that's not publicly available.
2: Yeah, kind of. The, the, it, that's So that's the interesting part um, where there's also some differences between Google and Alexa. But I think Alexa is the one that people are most familiar with. Um, so I'll, I'll talk more about that one. They essentially have this version called uh, Beta Test, um, which, like the name suggests, was Probably mostly designed for beta testing, but it ends up being good for rudimentary testing as well. Um, and so, for that one, you give it a list of email addresses, and uh, it sends an email to that person. There's a link that they have to click, and uh, once they do that, their account is basically always po- pointed at the development version of uh, of your skill, mm-hmm. um, which works out pretty well for us, because most of the time, like, we we've also generally have this practice of, like, um, I'm never going to be the only person testing the code that I push, right? <laughs> There's probably going to be at least three other people, like our product manager, our designer, um, and probably the other developer on my team who are testing that as well. So we basically keep ourselves on the beta test list all the time so that we're always pointed at the development version. Um, and so that's how we're doing most of our testing.
1: I see. I'm still trying to wrap my head around how this works. So, the by the time the data gets to you on your API, you said it's already gone through like machine learning and language processing. Do yep. you need your own language processing at all, or is it already mapped to a command of some sort?
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's mapped to what they call an intent, which is essentially like. Uh, a command, a name of a function, that's, that's kind of the easiest way to, to think about it. Definitely for Alexa, like there's, there's no incentive at all for Alexa to bring your own um, kind of natural language processor. For Google, um, the easiest way to, pr- to produce a, uh, what they call an action for Google Assistant is to use the service called Dialogflow. Um, which is actually a company that they bought, it used to be called API.AI, and they were actually originally focused more on chatbots, and now they've extended it to essentially be sort of like the development platform for Google Assistant Actions. Um, What's interesting there is that, so that's basically the easiest way to to, uh, produce an action for Google, but you can opt not to use it. And if you decide not to use Dialogflow, then you do need to bring your own natural language processor. Um, but I think you know the vast majority of us are probably not in the business of both doing natural language processing and also doing something with that data. Yeah. So I think the fact that they're providing a pre-built solution works out pretty well.
3: Mm-hmm. So to test that, I mean, like for local development, um, how does that work with, with like, Lambda functions? Is, is that something that you can run locally or?
2: Um... Uh, you can. Um, so far, all of the tools that I've tried for that have not been great. Um, so we don't do a ton of that right now. And I think that's that was definitely kind of the biggest mental shift for both my partner developer and I. Like Uh we'd always been very much used to always doing local developments. Um, But like I said, I think there's also, there's there's just a big disconnect between like when you're just writing that Lambda function It's so easy to do it in sort of like a unit test kind of fashion where you very tightly control the input, and so the output is also what you expect. But once you bring in this whole other dimension of like this device that you talk to where someone else is is controlling the NLP, um, the results can be a lot more unpredictable. So I think it also makes sense to do a lot more kind of like manual in-person testing, even Mm. though it definitely slows down the process.
3: Sure, but that makes sense because it's, yeah, that that would be very tough to... To, to automate, right, exactly. Yeah, though it's it's interesting too because
1: there's that whole layer before it gets to you, right? Like, yep. Once again, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. <laughs> but does the way that you name your commands influence the way that like how easy it is for them to recognize it and things like that? Like that's almost pre your code, but it's mm-hmm. like if it's if this is a word that is easier for NLP or you know language parsing to understand. That potentially makes it easier for things to get through. Like I, I haven't used Google Assistant much at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I've played around with Alexa a little bit. My father-in-law has an Alexa. My kids love to talk to her. She gets maybe 20% of what they say, hmm. yep. right? And I could see that that being, while it's not as bad for an adult, you're not going to be quite as much like if you're the words that you choose to activate your application, function, skill, whatever yeah. the skill, skill. Are are tricky for Alexa to parse. Like you're in trouble. How do you like test that? How do you like control for this at all?
2: That's a great question, and and uh, and we're definitely still working that out as well. Um, I will say the platform does help you with that a little bit in a couple of different ways. Um, again, focusing primarily on Alexa as an example because I think that's the one that more people are familiar with. Um, the way that it works is, uh, I mentioned before, you have your intent, which is technic- basically the mapping of like, uh, what, you're try- what your skill should be trying to do, what the user is trying to do, what function it should invoke in your actual app code. Um, and an intent is always accompanied by a list of what they call sample utterances. And so this is uh, basically all the variations of what someone could say in order to trigger that intent. Um, They generally recommend that you provide, for any intent, I think at least 20 to 25 sample utterances. But like I mentioned, they're also doing some machine learning. So um, your list does not necessarily have to be exhaustive. They're actually smart enough that if you provide two things that are fairly close together, and then there happens to be a third variation that's kind of in between those two, it's smart enough to figure out that you're still probably trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, There is also a certification process uh, that you have to go through in order to publish a skill to um, to the skill store. And that actually involves, like, real humans at Amazon who are testing your skill and they will actually provide you feedback and basically be like, uh, this command is way too complex or it's way too easy to screw it up or um, like any time that we tested, um, we always got it partly wrong and we actually have recommendations for how you can fix that. Um, so that's kind of uh, what helps there as well.
3: How difficult is that? Like getting those those intents right or... or I forget what you call them, but yeah
2: um, I would not, not say, making the
3: command too right. complex,
2: yeah, the short answer is it gets easier the more that you do it. Sure. you know the first time that you do it you're probably you 're going to miss like a hundred of them, um, and uh, that 's something that just kind of comes with experience. Um, I think what helps us as well is, uh, as I mentioned, we have a designer on our team, um, and so he 's very conscious of that. Um, and he's he's a person who um, he really likes doing user testing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of his favorite things. So he's been focused a lot on that, like observing real users behaving with these devices or interacting with these devices and seeing how they behave. Um, interestingly enough, he actually, he, he even started on that before we started any actual development. Um, what he did was he took like uh, f- something that looks like a speaker um, I think it was actually maybe technically like a water bottle like yours. And he put it on the table and he just asked people to be like, okay, you're trying to do XYZ thing. What are you going to say? Um, what would be sort of the most logical command to, um, to you? And so that was sort of the the starting point for what we call like our internal voice lexicon, which is based off of not just what we think that users should do, because I think sometimes as a developer, you know, you're kind of approaching that from uh, from kind of like an inside baseball perspective, right? Of like, I know that it needs to trigger XYZ, so this is the most logical thing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas he has approached it much more from a human perspective of like the humor, human is trying to do this. Um, and so XYZ is the most logical thing for them to be saying. Uh, and sometimes, you know, we kind of have to compromise a little bit and meet in the middle because mm-hmm. it turns out that what the human is trying to, to, to say is actually not possible because of various platform restrictions. Um, But I think approaching it from the human angle uh, is certainly key. Um, And that's why one of my biggest recommendations when people are interested in working in this field is always work with a designer. Um, I think it's so easy to lump this work together on the umbrella of like, oh, it's IoT, so that means it's just a technical challenge. It requires someone like us who just wants to sit there and hack um, and, and kind of work at it, but working with a designer who is thinking about that human aspect, I think, is totally critical.
1: Are the utterances are those verbal? Those are recordings that it's no. They're in- actually typed out. They're typed out. Yeah. Interesting.
2: And so there's all of these rules that for like, for example, if your utterances include um, acronyms, um, then there's a specific format. Like you have to actually spell it out. Uh, they're generally all lowercase, and so you have to spell that with like periods in between, and then. The, the Alexa service is smart enough to recognize that that should be treated as an acronym.
1: In the background, you hear the bubble wrap? And they just got, somebody pointed <laughs> out that we were recording here. Like, but who can resist bubble wrap? Ah, it brought over some bubble wrap. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to pop bubble wrap for JS Party? <laughs> uh, this
3: is the okay. joys of live recording. <laughs> I know,
1: right? Uh, okay, so they are typed out, and then voice interfaces are so novel to me, and I'm yeah. still like, totally, so is that then... Is it mapping that to voice sounds and then mapping it back? Or is it just going, it's?
2: No, I think the Alexa service ultimately is only dealing with text. I think what they do is when you're speaking to your device, uh, it records an MP3 of that and then transcribes that into text. And so it compares that to the actual the text in your sample utterances and tries to figure out what you were trying to do. That's my best understanding. Like I said, it's a black box. They don't really yeah. like to talk about what happens inside of that box.
3: It's also really an interesting with, uh, you, you said you should have a designer working on this, but it's not really anything that you can see. It's all audible, right? Yep. So... That's that's really interesting having somebody design the audio experience and it's not something that that's typical in, in typical apps.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's not visual design. It's yeah. application design, interaction design, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Yeah. But.
2: Yeah, so that was even like one of our the first questions when I our team first convened about a year ago was sort of like how, do we, how does the designer communicate to the rest of us um, what we should actually be building, right? like What is a comp in this world when it's not front end and what are the tools that make sense for this? Um, and it's ended up being basically just a bunch of flowcharts created in, um, in Google Sheets um, because that turned out to be the absolute easiest way uh, to, to kind of map out what should be happening,
3: mm-hmm. and so the the application itself that you're designing is it really to be able to say like play this show on NPR or um, this specific episode or um,
2: uh, w- so that. Kind of already exists because um, a lot of that functionality can actually be powered by RSS feeds.
3: Oh,
4: cool!
2: Um, and so that's something where a lot of these device manufacturers—that's always step one for them mm-hmm. when uh, when they're trying to kind of expand the content of their platforms—is enable RSS feeds. So for us at NPR, that's great because we have those already. Yeah, that that we didn't have to build anything specific for that. Um, but uh, two things that we can't easily do that way that um, are after, after the RSS feeds are our biggest primary focus is um, allowing people to listen to the live stream of their local radio station, NPR member station, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, NPR One, which is um, one of our um, kind of multi-platform experiences. Um, NPR One started out as a mobile app for Android and iOS um, and is now available on various other platforms. Uh, universal windows, integrated into cars, um, several different smart TVs, it's gonna be on uh, the smart fridge that Samsung is working on, that sort of thing. And so the whole idea for NPR One is it's um, personalized, essentially like a personalized public radio playlist um, that's kind of informed by your listening habits So, if you like to listen to a lot of podcasts, it can recommend you podcasts. If you're like me and you have a short attention span, it can just basically catch you up on um, sort of the the latest stories and like two to three minute segments, that sort of thing. Very cool. And so both of those are something that's really only possible with custom skills. (laughs) Um, The live streaming one is primarily just because um, we need to account for all of these different situations where the user may or may not know what their local NPR member station is. And if they don't know, we have to help them find it. Um, and, And playing live streams can also sometimes be tricky on these platforms. It's not something that they usually support by default. Um, so that's that's always a kind of step one. And then MPR1 is also more complex than RSS feed because it's personalized. We actually require login because the whole idea is uh, we want you to, um, if you're listening on your mobile device, for example, while you're commuting to work, and then you get home and you want to keep listening on Alexa, we make sure that you don't hear the stories that you heard on your commute, mm. that sort of thing. Wow. How do you manage um, so those have been
1: login on a verbal or a vocal device.
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so for Alexa, right now the only thing that you can do is uh, use OAuth, and um, it requires someone to have the Alexa Companion app installed on their phone. Ah. Um, and uh, and it's a very uh, um, very kind of clear gate where basically once you say okay, enable authentication, the only thing that the user can do once they install or activate your skill is um, they have to go to that app and log in before they're able to interact with it in any way at all, Uh, which is not great for user experiences. So I generally recommend to people not to use that authentication wall unless they absolutely have to. You know, if you're a banking app, then it probably makes sense. But for everyone else, I would say, like, we've, we've seen enormous drop off with users. Like, they're not engaging with the Alexa skill. If they don't have an account already, if they don't know what they're, Um, what they're getting into, just because there's no way to provide a preview of what they're going to get. Google is a lot more flexible, and I think it also makes sense because they are an identity provider, right? And so um, at this year's I.O., they announced a new feature where you can actually log in via voice, Um, If you have a Google account already and that Google account um, already exists on the other OAuth server, um, or you can even configure it so that if it doesn't exist, it just creates an account automatically. Hmm. Um, So it's what they, or at least what we call like frictionless login essentially. Um, So that doesn't require you to take out the companion app. Um, So that really helps. And they're also a little bit more flexible about, um, you can provide some kind of experience where they can at least start interacting with your skill without having to be logged in. Uh, and so I think that helps a lot as well.
1: Yeah, log in by voice, meaning some sort of voice recognition, or I'm just imagining trying to spell out my password out <laughs> loud and hoping. Is anybody listening? All no, right. but
2: so the whole idea is, you know, when you're setting up your Google Home, um, you already have to take out your mobile device and install the Google Home app and link that to your Google account. So the Google Home already knows who you are, uh, and so the third-party develop our third-party skill essentially asks you and your Google Home. Um, for permission to share that account information with a third-party skill. Um, And you essentially just say yes or no, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's it. Um,
1: And it checks that it's you and not your five-year-old or something? um, I mean, not that I have any problems with this or anything, but...
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, So it does actually do voice matching. Um, So uh, I think that's where you do have to... Configure your Google Home To essentially be like aware That there's multiple people Interacting with the device Um, But once you do that It will recognize And basically It will know that Your five year old Is not you It will not tell My third party app that um, so it still kind of respects your privacy in that way. Um, but it is able to distinguish between multiple people in the house. And I would say that's also one of the biggest differences that I've seen so far, at least as a third-party developer, between um, Google Assistant skills and Alexa skills, is that Google Assistant skills are aware of multiple people interacting with a device, whereas Alexa just treats everyone in the house as one person. But again, that's where they don't have the frictionless login, so you would still have to take out your phone and actually manually sign in on the app.
1: That's interesting. So coming back to your development environment, it sounds like uh, you're here at Node Interactive, and you're talking about serverless and it being a lot like Express. So is this an area where a lot of the SDKs are in JavaScript? Are there other options for folks? Like, How does this work out?
2: Uh, yeah, I would say JavaScript is definitely the best option. I think it's the only one that has an SDK for every major voice platform, so Cortana is another one. We haven't done a whole lot with it just because the market share is so much lower, um, but they also have a Node.js SDK. Um, and of course, Node.js is also the only one that is supported on every sing- single serverless provider as well. Um, so that's where, like, again, it kind of helps you get up and running more quickly. Um, You do have other options. So there are, certainly I can say there are Alexa SDKs for Python and Java. Um, I think for Google Assistant, the only other SDK is for, like, essentially Android-flavored Java if you want to do more of, like, a mobile development kind of approach. Um, I don't think they have a Python one. And then Cortana also has a .NET one, obviously. Uh, so basically, the the one thing that they all have in common is Node. Um, and you don't have to go serverless; you could build your own kind of traditional REST web server. But it's just so much easier, frankly, to deploy it as a serverless function. Um, for us, the auto scaling is like really critical for like helping reduce costs as well. Uh, so. Unless you have a real strong reason not to go serverless, I would say like if you're gonna do this work, you should be probably doing serverless. <laughs> yeah.
1: Awesome. Uh, anything else exciting around voice or NPR? The work that y'all are doing in JavaScript and Node that would be interesting to a set of JS developers?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, we're definitely not the only team at NPR that is doing JavaScript. Um, we generally we give every team their own kind of ability to choose the tools that they think are the best ones for the job. Um, With some restrictions, uh, we have two really big legacy code bases, one that's written in PHP and the other that's written in Java. Um, And so sometimes it just kind of makes sense to stick with those. Um, Sometimes we don't have the the bandwidth to completely rewrite everything from scratch. Certainly with all of the new development that we're doing though, um, it's pretty much all node and JavaScript. I can't speak too much to the specifics, but we were early adopters of Koa too. Um, and so uh, some of our, our back-end de- uh, developers who, um, I think, mostly actually were very sort of like um, hesitant about JavaScript development initially, who just kind of loved PHP and were very comfortable with it, um, have kind of completely switched gears and, uh, and love Koa now. Um, so I think that's a big thumbs up for the Koa project. Yeah. That's great. Um, and uh, in terms of other things in voice at NPR, um, I mean it's constantly evolving. Uh, we don't even know what we're going to be doing like three months from now, <laughs> which is, I guess, the fun and exciting part about working in a new field. Yeah. Um, but stay tuned.
3: And I was going to ask if uh, the work that you've been doing, is it live on these devices?
2: Uh, For Alexa, yes. Um, For Google, no. Um, We are still working around some of the limitations of their audio player, like I mentioned. uh, It's still kind of a struggle for us. Um, But yeah, for Alexa, uh, if you say play NPR, um, that takes you to the station screaming still that I talked about. And uh, and if you ask uh, Alexa open NPR One, you'll get uh, the MPR1 skill that I talked about.
3: Do I have to go to the app and install these skills first, or does it just
2: um, appear? It's, uh, for play PlayMPR, you do not. Um, yep. We yep. Uh, Part of our perk of our good relationship with Amazon was that we got that so that it's essentially available to any device without any kind of install needed. Nice um, For MPR1, um, I believe as long as you say open NPR one and you're kind of clearly enunciating that so it doesn't think you're trying to access the other NPR skill, um, it should essentially just kind of install that for you automatically or it may just ask you like, do you want to install the NPR one skill? Um, but then you do need to log in. So then you still need to go to the app. So usually the easiest way to, uh, to access that one if you haven't used it before is just to go into the, uh, the Alexa skill store and install it right there, and then it'll just ask you to log in right away. So then you don't have to remember to go back and do that hmm. later.
1: Very cool. Awesome. Well, thanks, Nara. I appreciate you making the time and coming out and chatting with us. This has been, I mean, I learned a ton. Yeah, from this fun.
3: conversation. This is awesome. It's really cool, and it sounds like a, it's a really fun project to work on.
2: It is. It's tough, but it yeah. is a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank Sweet. you. This episode is brought to you by Raygun, who just launched their APM service. It was built with the developer and DevOps in mind. They're leading with first-class support for .NET apps, also available as an Azure app service, and have plans to support .NET Core, followed by Java and Ruby in the near future. After doing a ton of competitive research between the current APM providers, where Raygun APM excels is the level of detail they're surfacing. New Relic and AppDynamics, for example, are more business Oriented, where Raygun has been built for developers and DevOps. The level of detail provided in the traces are amazing. The flame charts are awesome and allows you to actively solve problems and dramatically boost your team's efficiency when diagnosing problems. Deep dive into root cause with automatic links back to source for an unbeatable issue resolution workflow. Learn more and get started at raygun.com/APM once again, raygun.com slash APM. This episode is brought to you by Gauge.
5: Gauge is a free and open source test automation tool by ThoughtWorks with a goal of taking the pain out of test automation for acceptance tests. To help with this, Gauge supports specifications and Markdown, which are easy to read and easy to write reusable specifications to simplify your code which makes refactoring easier and less code means less time maintaining your code and finally integration use gauge with your favorite tools and IDEs in the ecosystem of your choice like selenium and sahi pro ci and cd tools like GoCD, jenkins travis and ide support for visual studio vs code intellij and more head to gauge.org slash jsparty to learn more and give it a try once once again, gage.org slash jsparty.
1: Here at Node.js Comp, I'm here with Nick Nisi. Hello. And Jen Looper, who is a developer advocate at Progress. Yes. How are you doing?
4: I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate.
1: it. Awesome. So you did a talk earlier today. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
4: Sure. The talk was called "Build an Engaging Native Mobile App with NativeScript and Vue.js," and it was about basically this new um, custom implementation that we have in the NativeScript world for Vue. Normally with NativeScript, which is um, a runtime that you can be writing in JavaScript, and you're building for a native mobile. App. Normally we would be using Angular or no framework or just JavaScript or TypeScript, um, and this lovely college student named Igor Rondjelovish just decided to port it for Vue, and I went a little bit crazy. <laughs> so it was a really exciting moments for us.
1: That's awesome. So tell us a little bit more about NativeScript. It, it's JavaScript, mm-hmm. but it's a little more than that as well, right?
4: Yeah, it's a runtime, and I think the easiest equivalent that people are making nowadays is that it's a lot like React Native. Basically, we're all trying to solve this problem of using JavaScript to build cross-platform apps, and you know the people who started this was actually people like Accelerator, or titanium They're all doing these kind of runtimes or bridges or some some way to leverage the JavaScript run- um, runtime so that you can go ahead and and port your apps for um, for these native platforms. And so we're all uh, we all have great solutions for this and uh, NativeScript is one of those. And it's free and open source so you know no harm no foul if you want to try it.
1: <laughs> so if you have an existing Vue application how hard is it to port that into Vue NativeScript?
4: It's a great question and it's something that we know that everyone wants to do, and we haven't solved it yet. (laughs) But um, I think what we're going to be able to do is use the Vue CLI 3 and Vue 3 when it all comes out. Vue CLI 3 is here, but Vue 3 is coming out. uh, And we're going to be able to more easily make plugins at which point, we'll be able to actually scrap a lot of the code that we have for NativeScript View. And we'll be able to go ahead and say, you know, view, add. You have your web app, and you view, add mobile, or view, add my app name, dash, dash, mobile, or some such thing to, to go ahead and bolt on your native mobile app. This is the dream. We're not there yet, <laughs> right. but we're hoping very, very soon. And uh, it's exciting to kind of become close to the Vue project as it evolves and uh, have some kind of a little bit of input on how it's, how it's coming along. It's really exciting.
1: Yeah, this seems to be something that all of the big frameworks are moving towards, of having more of a pluggable rendering backend. So mm-hmm. I know Angular, part of their big rewrite was to enable that. React has started to do that so that yeah. you are essentially able to have. These DOM backend versus mobile backend versus potentially other backends just plug right in there.
4: Yeah, and I think the great strength of Vue is that first of all, we're a little bit newer, so we're able to learn from the things that other frameworks are doing. But also, it's always been presented as a progressive framework, so you can take a little piece of your application and rewrite it in Vue and just drop that in. So um, it's a it's not like a large, kind of monolithic, maybe an Angular app. You know, It's something that can just be progressively enhanced as you go. I always look at Dev 2. Um, they have rewritten pieces of their application in Preact. You know, so they just drop it in. This is kind of the new way of doing things. And it, mm-hmm. I think it allows your team to be really agile and to learn on the fly. It's pretty exciting.
1: Yeah, I love that about Vue in particular. And I think it is more and more something people are looking to do. I was chatting with a friend of mine who's reworking their application that was written with knockout.js or whatever. And he's like, this is an old framework. It's kind of ghetto. But most of our application, it just works. We just want something better for the new parts when we're doing something more complicated. For
4: sure, for sure, yeah. And it's nice to see that frameworks kind of can play well together. I mean, let's face it, all frameworks are trying to do the same thing as well. They're trying to make the web fast and performant. Mm -hmm. And I think that we all have different ways of doing it. But if we can all work together, then the web will be better. You know, this is the dream.
3: (laughs) <laughs> and is there anything specific about uh, Vue that that um, makes it uh, a, a good choice for for combining with native script to do native development?
4: Yeah, it's um, it's a nice question. So I really like. View because it's it's so lightweight and it's so fast. Um, I find that the startup time for um, for your native mobile apps is pretty quick, mm-hmm. and then once you webpack it down, it, the app size is actually pretty small. Compared, you know, a native app is always going to be your most performant and your smallest thing. But when you're using these runtimes, you're going to have a little overhead. But View gives you. It seems to me like the least overhead. Mm-hmm. So just because it's so small, we actually amusingly have a port for Preact as well, and somebody tried to do it for Aurelia. So it's kind of you know everyone's trying to see how far they can push this to get these kind of little small, fast-starting apps. Yeah, Yeah, it's kind of (laughs) cool.
1: And I know you've been involved in a lot of stuff in the Vue community in particular. Uh, Can you speak a little bit to what that community is like?
4: Yeah, it's a really cool community, and it's young enough that it's kind of able to have... New voices coming in and, and it's, it, it's, I think it's evolving in a really positive way. And one thing that I've been able to contribute, um, I have the privilege to be able to contribute, is um, my initiative which is called View Vixens. So um, this is, I was inspired by NG Girls, um, which was launched by my friend Moella, and she basically has workshops, like full day workshops, piggybacking on conferences. So we follow that same model and we're extending and expanding this model as we find locally we have different needs. So um, we do the workshops uh, for women uh, in the conferences. I'm going to actually do one tomorrow. Um, But we also have launched a whole bunch of chapters. We're scaling so fast. I literally, I did a conference in Paris and we had three chapters launched that day. I came back to Boston and there was a new chapter launched by the time I got home. So I I cannot keep up, this is insane. So (laughs) We're just scaling super, super fast and we're able to take care of people in South America. um, We just launched in Mauritius, so all over the place. Um, and I think that it's a great way for the community to grow, to expand, and a really like, like inclusivity from the get go. Yeah. So it's really nice to watch. I really love it. So, and by the way, Evan is on my board of directors. So, so from, the, from the top, you have you know, we have buy in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I went to ViewConf this year, actually. I think I saw possibly the same talk uh, or a similar Probably, talk yeah. that you gave there. Um, but yeah, it struck me how inclusive the community felt.
4: Yeah, it's really nice. And I think at, at ViewConf US, we were at that table. We were making so much noise. So it was just like we were really rack- making a racket. Um, it, it's, it's a really kind of um, kind community. And we want to make sure that it, it evolves in an even more inclusive and cool, cool way.
1: Nice. Um, so let's go back to the native script side of things a little bit. So we talked, we kind of dived over into Vue and in the community. What's the community like around native
4: Yeah, it's very interesting to watch it evolve. Um, I'm actually in charge of kind of parking. I kind of park twenty four seven on the native script Slack, the community Slack, and I've watched it grow from zero to eighty five hundred people now in general. So it's 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 you know adoption is always um, our our goal. We want people to adopt it. Um, it's of course there's a lot of, not competition, but there's other options out there. You know, um, React Native is very, very big. And so we have this kind of a little bit of a niche of people who want to use different frameworks or who don't want to use a framework at all. Um, so adoption is coming along, and um, I think where we're finding a lot of success in the Angular world is with banks. I don't know why, but banks seem to really enjoy using NativeScript, so that's kind of cool. <laughs> um, and then for Vue, the kind of the smaller shops, the agencies are looking at it as a as a viable option. So it's it's great to see, and um, and I'm there to help. You know, help launch, help help promote, help uh, in any way that I can. Nice.
1: So as I understand native script, so it's a runtime. There's also kind of a component library. Is that unique Mm -hmm. per framework or that's sort of a shared set of components across whatever you're using?
4: Yeah, it's a shared set of components. It's about 75 or some such number. So those are the base components, like the camera component that'll work. You, you use one component and then you leverage the native iOS and the native Android camera functions. Um, so all that stuff is basically all that Java and all that Objective-C and Swift is ab- abstracted away from you, so you don't have to deal with that stuff, <laughs> which is great, because nobody wants to deal with that stuff. Um, and then there's also um, there's kind of a premium set, which we used to have as a paid library, but we open sourced it for very fancy lists, charts, gauges, graphs, um, sort of the kind of fancy UI that some you know, well, banks, for example, might want to use for, for data analysis. And then we also have a whole bunch, I think there's 600 and something plugins that community members have built and, and engineering has built as well. And those are all on NPM. And if you go to the NativeScript marketplace, I think it's market.nativeScript.org, you can kind of get an idea of what's out there. So you know, there's core components, there's the premium components, and then there's all the plugins. So really, we've kind of got you covered. <laughs> And if we don't have you covered, then um, you can go to Android Arsenal and uh, CocoaPods and build your own plugin. That is not something that I'm loving to do myself. It's like I find it a little hard to get my head around. But some people are great at doing plugins. Uh, for, for example, Eddie, Reb- Eddie Rebruchen, who is our plugin guru, <laughs> he's really great at it. So it's kind of very fun to watch him work and useful to use. Nice. So
3: you mentioned in your talk uh, about uh, how Vue plus native script allows you to share a lot of code between the the native experience and a web experience. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and what goes into to that uh, kind of uh, isomorphic
4: sharing? Yeah, code? yeah. I mean, this is the great dream. Everybody wants to have like the big code base and like port for for um, Electron and you port right. for iOS, you port for Android, <laughs> and you port for web, and it's like it's a thing of beauty and a joy forever. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's like be careful what you wish for because you might get it. So, <laughs> but we have a beautiful way of doing this within the Angular community using Angular schematics. So you can just you know ng create all your different flavors of whatever you want, and that works brilliantly. With Vue, we're going to be leveraging the Vue loader and Webpack to kind of build pieces and bits of your code base progressively as you need it. We don't have the perfect official solution just yet. We're getting close. <laughs> so right now, the way we're we're looking to do it is to have a naming convention. We do this in Angular, too. We have naming conventions for your single file components. So you have um, like home.view for native, and then home.web.view for your web app. Okay. So a certain amount of your code can be shared, but you're going to abstract away. Um, you're going to fork, actually, the, the web views and then the native views. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like we have to decide exactly where the forking is going to happen, exactly how that code structure is going to work, how the build folders will look, whether we want to use the, the plugins, the Vue CLI plugins, Vue 3, how yeah, that's going to work. So it's like Vue is, is is evolving, and so is NativeScript Vue. It's uh, it's exciting times in Vue land. Yeah. <laughs> so
1: Nick, I'm curious: have y'all ever looked at
3: NativeScript for Dojo? Not yet, but as we're talking, that is something that I'm I'm definitely thinking about. Oh it's something that we should be looking into. What is Dojo? Uh, Dojo is a, a component library and, and framework um, that's very similar to to React in a lot of ways. It has oh, its cool. own VDom implementation. Oh, nice. Uh, and it's TypeScript first. Ah, uh-huh. and uh, yeah.
1: Dojo was one of the original frameworks Mm -hmm. out there. They were pushing modular JavaScript before any of the module standards existed. As I understand it, AMD essentially came out of the Dojo module implementation and things like that. But then they sort of sat at 1.0. And I don't know if this is accurate, but from the outside, it looked like stagnated for a long time.
3: Uh, It it was pretty active, um, very slowly, though, because it's been used by a lot of um, enterprises Yeah, very slow going with that, but uh, a, lot of, a lot of banks, government. It's uh, always the banks.
4: Yeah, right. <laughs> like, like,
3: like. Uh, but yeah, a lot of things came out of that module. Like AMD modules came out of that. Um, mm. There was a an er, very early promise implementation in it, and it's, it's been around since 2004.
4: Oh, awesome. So. You're really pushing that envelope. Yeah, yeah one of the
3: <laughs> longest lived frameworks I'm aware of. Yes. And they recently
1: did a 2.0 and now are iterating rapidly yes. with 3.0. We're, and various we're working other on 4 things,
4: coming yeah. out next week. Super uh, duper. Um,
1: you know, jumping on all the latest trends and doing well, things. Yeah, like
4: that's that. what we do in JavaScript exactly. world, you know. Like, yay, <laughs> frameworks. <laughs>
3: yay, a new trend. <laughs> but that's one thing that I like about uh, Dojo. And uh, I haven't used Vue yet, but uh, one thing that I like about it is that it's not really backed by Google or Facebook. You know, it's kind of its yeah, own thing. Definitely. Um, and and i think that, that that's a, an important thing to have in this yeah. environment right it's now.
4: evan's patreon <laughs> yeah, essentially <right. laughs> yeah. So, yeah it's uh, and i think he's doing very well so yeah. and it's nice to see people kind of contributing more and in view let's see in the, in view london he did a remote keynote which was very interesting because what they're talking about for view 3 is breaking up the view package into pieces so like the uh, the The renderer will be stripped out, and then like that would be of particular interest to us Mm -hmm. on the mobile side. So we could work on that piece, and then other parts of the library will be broken out so that you know it'll be easier to contribute to because this is kind of complicated stuff. Yeah. So maybe if we can just understand the the renderer, you know, you're money ahead. So just work on that, (laughs) and I think it'll help with adoption and help with contributor adoption.
3: You also mentioned that Vue is going to be rewritten in TypeScript.
4: Yes. So this is exciting. Um, I like TypeScript. Yeah. I'm
3: always trying to turn this into a TS party.
4: Oh, I do I I like TypeScript especially in an Angular context. Yeah. Yeah. I always used to give talks to, um, in Angular saying, you know, once you go TypeScript you never go back. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but I think for Vue it's going to be a huge win. Mm-hmm. What, how, you know, I think that people really enjoy it. You just get a little learning curve going and then you can just hop right in and it'll make your everything so much safer. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: right? Well, and I gather the the Vue team and the TypeScript team have actually been working together for a while. Yeah. Uh, there were improvements integrated into TypeScript specifically to support current versions of Vue and Vue has been iterating to be able to better move to TypeScript and things like that. Interesting. So there's, there's definitely some collaboration that's been going on Yeah, there. yeah.
4: Synergies. <laughs> <laughs> Super.
1: Another thing that I think is really interesting about Vue is they're currently really working, like, the big focus before Evan announced three, which I guess is now the big focus, but mm-hmm. there was a huge focus for a while on improving the process and the sort of structures around it. And in that way, also learning from the community. You know, They're adopting an RFC process modeled, I think, after the way Ember does things. Oh, yes. And kind There's of a
4: lot of Ember footprint in view. Pulling
1: in all of these different pieces. So it's not just technically that we're learning from other parts mm-hmm. of the community, but also in terms of process.
4: Yeah. I'm going to guess that Chris Fritz's fingerprints are all over that, because <laughs> he, he's, he's kind of the guru of the docs. And one of the biggest strengths of Vue is the docs. And this is Chris Fritz, because he's an absolute genius at this stuff. So they tend to get together um, for, for sprints. So I think that they were in Poland last time doing a sprint, and that probably helps a lot getting process sorted out. So um, it's really cool to see. It's really a community, a kind of an organic growth. And it's kind of unique actually. It's kind of neat.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's gone from what felt like a single man project that blew up to yeah. now looking like it's going to you know, have the same types of community organization and governance that any of these
4: projects. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And we're kind of helping with, we're actually working on um, uh, across the board a little bit on code of conduct situations so it's kind of interesting we're kind of collaborating with folks in the angular community and in the react community to get a kind of framework agnostic code of conduct and that will also help with process with you know prs and with behavior on github and just to kind of make everything a little bit more you know calm <laughs> That would be really cool.
1: We love to do the framework A versus framework B situation, yeah. <laughs> but more and more I think it's more all of these frameworks are just growing in mm-hmm. tandem. The JavaScript world is exploding. Yes, and yes.
4: As my colleague in Sun life used to say, this is job security.
1: <laughs> so. Yeah, if you're listening to this podcast because you work in JavaScript, you have incredible job security. <laughs>
4: you absolutely do.
1: <laughs> Though I hear you maybe should be looking at TypeScript.
4: Yeah.
3: <laughs> More job
1: security.
4: WebAssembly, I think. Isn't this the next thing? Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, it's funny you should say that, because a lot of folks are like, well, is WebAssembly going to replace JavaScript?
3: I don't think it does. I think it complements. I think so, yeah.
4: Yeah. I don't know very much about it, but I'm not loving the um, kind of yippee yay here comes WebAssembly, let's just throw our JavaScript out out the window. I don't Mm -hmm. think that's a great attitude. I think that, you know, let's all keep learning and make sure that we're all working towards the same goal, which is making the web performant and fast. Mm -hmm. You know? Yep,
3: exactly. What I've seen with it with, uh, like, uh, ASM.js and, and WebAssembly is taking things that aren't written in JavaScript uh, and compiling them to JavaScript. So things that are written in C, uh, audio oh. codecs and things like that, and then being able to bind into them with JavaScript so that you can run them all in the browser natively.
4: Mm, like Dart, would that be an example? Or um, I'm thinking
3: more of like like libraries and such, like oh. uh, like a way to uh, decode audio, for oh. example, oh, audio codecs, things like that, and. Uh, that are written in other languages, being able to take that, put it into JavaScript, and uh. then bind to it with with like a JavaScript wrapper, and, oh. and then interface with it through JavaScript.
4: So not mm. really like TensorFlow JS, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, hot dog.
1: Cool. Yeah, or there's, since we always want to turn this into a Vim party, somebody built Vim in WebAssembly and put it on the web. I'm so confused. Yeah, it's kind of amazing, actually.
4: Oh my gosh, wow.
1: (laughs) They're complete with macro support and everything, because it's just a build of Vim. Right. Astounding. Most of the web-based editors, they'll have Vim bindings, where they're like, okay, you can change your key bindings here, but then their macro support is poor, or they've Mm -hmm. got you know, there's stuff that just isn't Gaps there. But they literally the just compiled <laughs> and said, OK, now it's a browser. I mean, we're taking browsers and making them the new OS.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah for sure. Yeah, for sure.
1: Um, anything else we sh- you want to touch on or talk about? What? So what are you excited about from this conference, from Node.js?
4: Um, I'll tell you. I, um, I'm very curious how our event will go tomorrow. So um, it's going to be very short. We haven't. We'll see how it goes. Um, I hope that. I hope that it'll be enough mentors. For, I'm, I'm thinking very basic, like mentors and attendees and how it's going to work out. But um, I think it'll be fine. But um, in terms of talks, I think there's so much quality out there in terms of the talks. In this conference, it is excruciatingly difficult to pick and choose what you want to see. Yes. Um, I was actually really astounded by one of the keynotes this this morning, the the one on IoT. You know, So I'm kind of hoping to see more IoT type things out there so I can catch up again, because I used to love it. Maybe this is like the opportunity I can go and see some more cool IoT talks.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and that that was actually a good highlight of exactly what we're talking about in terms of JavaScript taking over yes. and web, <laughs> you
3: know,
1: job security for all of us jobs, uh, JavaScript developers because. Here's this guy who's been in the IoT world since essentially the beginning saying, Look, we're overcomplicating it. Really, we should just be using web technologies (laughs) because they're everywhere and they work. Yeah, for sure. And there's no need to be doing all this crazy niche stuff anymore. You can be running JerryScript on the devices, you can use JavaScript based toolkits. at JSConf learned about Johnny 5. I was gonna say Johnny 5 that. is like incredible. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, you know JavaScript, suddenly you can do robotics.
4: That's incredible. And I think it's a huge for the for the learning, the people who are trying to build courseware and who are trying to teach. Mm-hmm. Like this stuff, especially with IoT. Because I, I always feel we actually have an IoT component of Vuevix since I have I I was partnering with uh, par- um, particle, and they gave me some devices. And it was really, um, it's re- we did a cool little workshop. So you were running a, a mobile app that can control your particle. Devices, it's all JavaScript. It's incredible stuff. And I think it's great for learning. People love that tangible feeling of I made something light up with mm. JavaScript. That's crazy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Now you can suddenly do these things that you used to have to do all this crazy low level programming, and it's a couple lines of JS.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm.
4: absolutely. That's good stuff.
3: And our editors are, are being written in JavaScript now, too, with, yeah. with Visual Studio Code. and
4: Yeah, that was another great talk. The yeah. VS Code talk was super. Coming from April's talk about compassionate coding to have Microsoft up there basically totally walking the walk because yeah. that whole project is based on compassion, and listening, and uh-huh. thanking, and being a kind, and being cool. And you know God love Microsoft. They're super. They're, yeah, they're it was super. pretty funny
1: hearing him talk about uh, how passionate people get over minor
4: things. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. Well, the icon, we all freaked out. Remember yeah when the icon yeah, changed yeah. everybody so, like was crying
1: <laughs> yeah total freak out and how that inspires a little bit of humility when you're open to and listening to yeah. people going back and i think that's actually that's really important in our industry and mm-hmm. one of the things that i see a lot almost possibly more on the design side even but then front end developers were part of this too mm-hmm. is redesigning things for the sake of redesigning things mm-hmm. or because some trend is new and hip mm-hmm. and not thinking about the costs on our users. Yes. And I think about for example my mother who cannot deal with change anymore.
4: Oh yeah. Oh so for she sure. She
1: can't use the web. Mm-hmm. She can't use an iPhone anymore because things kept changing yeah. so fast that she just you can't
4: yeah throws it's just her hands. too much to learn. Yeah.
1: And you know we in our bubble Things change every six we months. we love it
4: because we get bored.
1: Right? <laughs> and so we say, OK, well, there's this hip new trend, and Oh, my app is so stale. It's been the same for a year and a half. Oh I've got to change everything up. Yeah. But if you're outside of the bubble, mm-hmm. that's more confusing than helpful. Mm. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I have a mobile app out there that teachers and students use for it's it's Practice Buddy. It's a little bit similar to Elocute, but um, it's the kids are playing their musical instruments and, and, and clips of their practices heading to their teachers so that they can an- analyze and give feedback stickers. <laughs> and stickers. Um, and that was the first app I ever developed. I did it in Objective C, and then I redid it in like several different. Frameworks, (laughs) but I never changed the design that much. Um, Maybe once or twice early in the days, but it's basically been a card layout, and and I got feedback. You know, the kids are used to it, and it's okay. It's good enough. Back to the idea of good enough.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Good enough. Software. The value of software is in what it enables, not in how pretty the code is or how cutting edge the (laughs) framework Mm -hmm. or what have you.
4: Yeah. That being said, nice code is, is really nice to work. Yes. With. Oh, it's great for us. <laughs> yeah. Right?
1: Like yeah. one this actually comes back to something else that's been spinning around the industry recently is developer ergonomics mm-hmm. versus performance and oh. how much you know, we tend to make choices based on developer ergonomics. And justify those choices, saying, "Well, we're going to then be able to iterate faster. We'll be able to uh. do things better, and so it's going to be better for the user in the end."
4: Mm.
1: Without actually measuring that, yes. or coming yes. back and saying, "Was it, in the end, better for the user? Was that extra 20k that we installed for this framework that's going to speed us up a little bit? Mm. You know, when we bounce, how much that's slowing the folks mm. down? Did it pay for itself? Did it pay was for it itself, valuable yeah. when it comes to, you know, user endpoints?" We. As an industry, tend to over bias for ourselves. Oh yeah, because we we're the ones. I mean, we make the decisions and we yeah. see ourselves. <laughs> and that I think comes back to this compassion question and actually going out and listening to users and talking to users. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more we can get into that habit, the more we'll see the cost of some of our ergonomic decisions.
4: Mm-hmm. Amazing. Which yeah. isn't
1: to say write bad code. Right. No.
4: Good but, code is helpful. But listen but. to the, your customers for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure, listen. <laughs>
1: and test it. You know, yeah, have mm-hmm. metrics for performance, for user experience, for yeah. all that stuff.
4: I mean, it's fun in the mobile world. Um, there is a terrific little case study done on um, just changing the icon and how much it spurred adoption. It was a racing game, and it was a, an image of a car, you know, got like speeding from, and so you looked at it from behind, so speeding into the distance. That was the first icon. The second icon was it was coming towards you. And so I think one of, I think the one coming towards you had so much better like user adoption. But they basically all they can do is watch the downloads, you know, and just do the A/B testing by the downloads. It's kind of scary to to get an idea.
3: That's not something I want to admit, but that's definitely something that I, I think of when I see a new app that I I might want to has get. The if icon. it has a good icon, like that's yeah already in a good spot. If it yeah, yeah. If it looks dated or looks old, like it's hard for. For you to trust it. Yeah, in well,
4: watch your ways. Android stuff now, because it's all oh, changed. Yeah. It, it just changed recently. I was releasing for Practice Buddy for Android, and I was kind of horrified. I think I screwed it up too. So i got to no. fix that, you know. <laughs> it's all different now.
1: <laughs> Anything else we want to talk about? I mean, the talk of the conference is this JavaScript foundation merger. I don't know if that's something that that you have thoughts on or opinions on or that touches NativeScript or Vue at all?
4: It doesn't touch NativeScript Vue, but it touches me really closely because this idea of a foundation, I need to talk to Jory a little bit more on what, what it means to be a foundation because we're actually in the process of turning Vue Vixens into a, a private foundation at Progress. So it's super interesting to go through, and I'm working closely with Progress Legal, and I'm very grateful that they're giving me all this pro bono, you know, um, work, progress legal, um, accounting, and taxes. Hmm. Um, so basically, I'm not responsible for paying all those taxes that I would probably have to pay if I crowdsourced everything um, and had everything donated. So, um, But it's I'd, I'd like to have a better grasp, and maybe I will be able to after this conference, of what it means to be a foundation. I think one of the keynotes, she said, a foundation is just another tool, another framework, because maybe they've gotten pushback on be, being a foundation. Mm. So it's interesting, I wonder... How does it impact you as a brand to be a foundation? How does it feel for your users to be part of a foundation? I'm just learning all this stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that mm-hmm. keynote was interesting. Sarah Navati from Google was, mm-hmm. she was kind of highlighting foundations as a tool that gives corporations who have money yeah. a an entity that they know how to interact with, yeah. that they can give that money to to support the community in mm-hmm. some way, where they might not be comfortable connecting directly with individuals. Yeah. But a foundation is another's, you know, Legal entity that they can understand yeah. and deal with,
4: and I think that a lot of people don't understand that a foundation that a company would would spin up, there must be there there is a self-dealing rule. That I'm I'm learning all this stuff, so <laughs> you cannot promote your stuff through your foundation at all. So I have to be very very careful whenever I do a workshop on NativeScript. I can't say you know this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's like it's just a thing. We're going to use it today. Hmm. You know? can love it or you can hate it. It's no skin off my nose, you know? <laughs> um, but I couldn't do like a Kendo UI workshop at all because that's a paid product. Like this would never fly. So, you know, the Node, or, um, the Node Foundation can never be pushing a product. Mm. So I don't know if that helps people kind of get their heads around what it is. <laughs> it's not a marketing tool anyway. Yeah.
3: It's Another thing that, that a foundation does is it, um, it, it deals with like the the legal things that you don't want to think about when, when dealing yes. with open source. So yes. I know that foundation projects um, that, that I've interacted with have a, a CLA bot on GitHub. And uh, it will go through and yeah. check if you have signed the CLA. And if mm-hmm. you haven't, then you, it'll fail the pull request. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so the, you have to have that CLA signed, which just means that you're giving this code away to the foundation. Mm-hmm. So it's owned by the foundation. And that also protects the companies that want to come in and use it, because they're guaranteed it's guaranteed to be owned by the foundation and not by individual contributors. So. Yeah,
4: it protects the, yeah. um, the, so it, the it staff, essentially, as well, too. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, I just got a large knowledge dump yesterday, I think, about um, GDPR. And I've already oh, yeah. been trained on GDPR. So this was just, like, going through every aspect of uvexns.org and make sure. And there's actually a piece that I need to... I think I need to fix it up.
1: <laughs> it's overwhelming how yeah. much stuff there it's is to lot. think on the legal front. Yeah. And, you know, as an individual contributor, you don't want to worry about I that. Even yeah, as an organizer, like, general maintainer, you don't want to worry about that. Mm-hmm. Having a foundation to help is nice. Yeah, I think
4: so. And I'm really grateful to Progress for their overwhelming support. I mean, we were on the keynote stage of progress next our big conference and it was like extremely emotional for me because I just spun this thing up in February you know <laughs> and it's like all of it it just blew up so it's really kind of emotional and exciting it's super cool I think <laughs> it
1: speaks to a desire for community organizations and particular community organizations that provide you know, welcoming on ramps for women and other minorities who are mm-hmm. sadly sometimes excluded from our communities mm-hmm. and often that exclusion you know coming back to the compassionate coding mm-hmm. side is perhaps not deliberately malevolent but Mm-mm. kind of flowing out of a sense of just unawareness of human feelings mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. elitism about the technology without thinking about human consequences and creating mm-hmm. those welcoming on ramps is huge
4: yeah it really is we're also part of our mission for me is also not just Dealing with the pipeline, but also dealing with the mid career folks. So, because there's another drop off in mid career where people just kind of get fed up and bail. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm trying to create a, a community of like mid career women professionals who can kind of mentor the kids coming into the pipeline. So it's kind of like an interesting, there's a lot going on with this community. So.
3: Yeah, yeah <laughs> um, for sure. And, and then we have great. all our
4: chapters, you know, we're doing other things. So
3: Is there somewhere that people can go to learn more about Vuevixens Vixens and maybe how to start a chapter or find a chapter?
4: Yeah, so uh, viewvixens.org is your point of entry and all of our workshops are on the homepage. We're working on a chapter page. Um, it's like scaling so fast that we haven't had time to do it yet, yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> we're getting there. But um, yeah, I think we have about 10 chapters. By now. Nice. Yeah, it's super cool.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jen, Thanks. for taking the time and chatting
0: with us.
4: It was great fun. I really appreciate your time.
0: <laughs> All right. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tuning live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to slash community. And do us a favor, share this show with a friend, or us don't snap a podcast, go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno cloud servers. Head to Leno.com slash Changelog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at Changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.
5: I'm Tim Smith, and my show Away From Keyboard explores the human side of creative work. You'll hear stories sometimes deeply personal about the triumphs and struggles of doing what you love.
2: I ended up in hospital with burnout. I just kept ignoring the way that it was making me feel and just kept powering through it. And then eventually my body started to give me physical symptoms to say like, hey, you should stop and listen to me.
5: New episodes premiere every other Wednesday. Find the show at changelog.com slash AFK or wherever you listen to podcasts.